Well, tonight we are beginning a new series on the names of God. Uh, One of the ways God tells us what he's like is by the different names that he gives to himself. Each of the names of God in the Bible reveals something different about him. Uh, So, for example, you have Sovereign God, Lord of Hosts, Holy One of Israel, God of Jacob, God of Heaven, the Living God, God Most High. I've been thinking of doing a series on the names of God for a few years now. And so whenever I've come across the name of God in in the Bible, I've made a note of it. I'm not sure at this point how many we'll cover. Uh, We'll we'll start with a few and maybe keep it going over the summer. And later on tonight, we want to think about the name God, as in G-O-D, the most basic name of God in the Bible. But we want to start for the first half of our time tonight with an introduction to the whole series. Names in the Bible are very significant. They are more than just labels. Not that names are are just a label for us. It's true that we're not likely or not as likely to choose a baby's name based on its meaning the way they did in Bible times. But over time, someone's name comes to represent who that person is. And when we hear that name, it stirs feelings in us because of how we feel about that person. But in the Bible, people are often given names that describe the parents' hope for their child. Take the name Noah. Noah is a very popular name today. But we're told in Genesis 5.28 that Noah in the Bible was given the name Noah, uh, which means rest, because, because his parents hoped uh, that he would be the promised one who would bring them rest from the effects of sin, from the painful toil of their hands. Uh, because uh, from the very beginning there had been this hope of one who would come, who would crush the serpent. Uh, And the boys and girls know uh, who who the serpent crusher is. Uh, The serpent crusher was Jesus. But Noah's parents hoped that it might be Noah. Uh, Or you have others in the Bible whose names uh, turn out to very accurately describe uh, what they grew up to be like. Uh, You have Jacob, whose name means a twister, deceiver, supplanter. Sometimes God changed the names of people in the Bible to describe the new rules he was giving them. Like with Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, originally Abraham and Sarai. And as Jesus did with Peter in the New Testament, uh, Simon, uh, who is called Peter, a Cephas rock. And naming someone in the Bible speaks of authority. This is an important point to grasp. Naming someone speaks of authority. And so Adam names the animals. How do we know that human beings and animals aren't the same? Well, it's pretty obvious. But one reason is that Adam names the animals. The animals don't name Adam. Genesis 1.19 Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Today we name our pets. You choose your dog's name and when you call it, you expect it to come. 
though cats are maybe a bit different. Uh, but, but even as human beings, we don't name ourselves. No one asks a baby what its opinion is before the parents write it on the birth certificate. Naming a child is one of those ways that parents exercise their God-given authority over their baby. Back in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. And the word man in Hebrew is Adam. Uh, So the name of the first man uh, comes from God. Though interestingly, the name of the first woman comes from Adam. Genesis 3.20, we could have gone on to read... uh, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And actually the fact that Adam names his wife is a little hint that authority in marriage is delegated to the man. It's not ultimate authority. God delegates the naming of Eve to Adam. And so we can speak of the husband's authority in marriage as a delegated, limited authority. Uh, but the husband does have a level of authority that the wife doesn't. Adam was formed first, then Eve, uh, says Paul in First Timothy 2, when arguing that women in the church are not meant to teach or exercise authority over a man. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Um, we could add that Adam named Eve. Eve didn't name Adam. But the big point is that we... We don't name ourselves. But God does name himself. And that's really significant. No one named God. In fact, God is the only being in the universe who hasn't had his name chosen by someone else. Have you ever thought of that? God is the only being in the universe who hasn't had his name chosen by someone else. Even Satan had his name chosen for him. Whatever you call him, Satan or the devil or whatever. Satan means adversary. Devil means accuser. But they're both names chosen by God. So when people go to a Satanist church, when they take the name of Satan on their lips, even in saying his name, they're acknowledging that he doesn't have ultimate authority. Like every other creature in the universe, his name has been given to him. But when we come to think of the names of God, we're not thinking of names that other people have come up with for God. We're thinking about names that God has revealed to us. And when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's speaking about everything he has revealed to us. Psalm 75 begins, We give thanks to you, O God, for your name is near. And to say that God's name is near means that God himself is near. Or when God says that he will make his name dwell in the tabernacle or the temple, it means that he himself is going to be present there. One verse that we might come back to in this series is Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Uh, The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
Obviously, that doesn't mean that when we're in danger, we somehow run to the word God or the word Lord. It means that when we're in danger, we trust God because we know from the Bible that he keeps his people safe. So God's name is a description of what God is like. And that is what we run to. This isn't just an Old Testament idea. In Acts chapter 9, God tells a man called Ananias that freshly converted Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. And when Paul went on his missionary journeys, he wasn't just to turn up and declare the word God or, or Jesus and then move on. He was to tell the people who this Jesus was. He was to tell them what God was like. Uh, And in light of all that, it surely uh, has implications for the third commandment, which forbids us from taking God's name in vain. It's not simply about being careful how and when we say words like God and Lord and Jesus. Though it certainly includes that. But it's also about treating God as special in what we think and say and do towards him. Uh, And in light of all this scripture teaching about God's name, we can see uh, the wisdom in the Shorter Catechism answer which says, The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word and works. Treating God's name as holy is about far more than what we say. And amazingly, in baptism, we have God's name put on us. In baptism, we have God's name put on us. Some people wrongly see a baby's baptism as a naming ceremony. That it's just there for friends and relatives to come and see the baby being formally given its name. But that's to make a a mockery of the biblical meaning of baptism. But baptism is a naming ceremony in the sense that the child or adult has God's name put on them. Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or, or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the person who is baptised at whatever age has a responsibility to go out and live a life that honours God. And no matter how far someone goes away from the faith, if they have been baptised, they have God's name put on them and we can call them back to live in light of that. After a minister baptises someone, they'll usually pronounce what's known as the Aaronic Blessing. It's found at the end of Numbers 6, where Aaron and his sons, who were priests, are told to bless the people uh, with the words of this blessing. Boys and girls, you you won't remember this, but after you were baptised, the minister would have said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. Interesting three uh, uses of the word Lord. And the next verse says. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel. And I will bless them. So both Old and New Testaments. God's name is put upon his people. 
in the Old Testament put upon his people in blessing, in the New Testament put upon his people in baptism. It's a great privilege and a great responsibility. We bear God's name. Will we represent him well or will we bear his name in vain? So that's all by way of introduction to the names of God. God's name is way more than a label. It reveals what he's like. The different names that he shares with us reveal different things about his character. And unlike every other being in the universe, God doesn't receive his name from someone else. Because unlike the rest of us, he's not under the authority of anyone else. For the rest of our time then tonight, we want to think of the name God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't normally mention Hebrew or Greek words in sermons, but this one is worth knowing or being able to recognize if you come across it. Uh, The word God in Hebrew is Elohim, uh, which in English we'd spell as E-L-O-H-I-M. And this is the generic word for God or for a God, small g. So, so if you see God in the Bible with either a, a, a big g or a small g, it's this word Elohim. It's used to describe the true God and it's used to describe false gods. In Arabic translations of the scriptures, the word Elohim is translated as Allah because that's the Arabic equivalent It's a general name for God. And that might sound quite shocking to us. Uh, But remember that Arabic-speaking Jews and Christians obviously had a word for God before Muhammad was born, before Islam was invented, and that word was Allah. And there are are some Christians who would argue, well, uh, Arabic-speaking Christians should come up with a new name for God. Um, But there are... One of the arguments against that is that there are 10 or 12 million Arab Christians today who've been calling God Allah in their Bibles, poems, writings and so on for over 19 centuries, again uh, from before Islam came along. In fact, in 2013, a court ruling in Malaysia ruled that Christians there couldn't use the word because Muslims didn't like them doing so, even though Christians had been using it for centuries. And so when Arabic translations of the Bible use the word Allah for God, they're not trying to make the Bible more acceptable to Muslims. They're just translating the word Elohim the way they've always done. Though obviously what Muslims understand by God or Allah is very different from what we understand by the word God. Just as what what we understand by the word God is is very different from what a a health or wealth preacher might mean by the word God. But as well as the general name for God, the Bible also gives us God's personal name. And that is the name Lord, uh, also written as Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, which we'll look at next week, God willing. So in one sense we could say that there's a category known as God's. Uh, As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 8, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, Or or as we sang earlier from Psalm 96, that the gods of the peoples are idols 
but the Lord made the heavens. But out of all these so-called gods, there is only one true God. And his name is Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. So the word gods is similar to the word man in a way. It is, or at least it can be a general term. Whereas the word Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord is similar to Adam or Abraham in that it's a personal name. But actually that distinction begins to to break down as the Bible goes on. Because although in one sense the word gods can be used to describe a whole category of beings, the Bible is clear that there only is one God. And this is absolutely fundamental to Christianity. During the week we had two young men at the door claiming to be Christians. Uh, They were Mormons. uh, And the Mormons believe in many gods. Though they won't tell you that up front, and in fact, these two at the door refused to admit it, even when, when I asked them. Though previously, when I've spoken to Mormons, they have. Uh, one of them this week kept saying, As far as we're concerned, there's only one God. But even when I pushed them, when I said, What do you mean, as far as we're concerned? Uh, they still wouldn't admit that they believed in multiple gods. They wouldn't admit that they believed that God was once, once a man and then became God and that we can do the same. Mormonism uses the language of Christianity but it is a, a polytheistic cult. Uh, the Bible is clear that there is one God. Deuteronomy 4.35 could be translated uh, Jehovah is the God. He is the God. There is no other Psalm 86.10 says, You alone are God. There isn't some gallery of gods and Jehovah is the pick of the bunch. There's not other gods who are weaker and our God is the strongest. Isaiah 43.10, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so the other gods are nothing. And the true God can address them and tell them that. And so in Isaiah 41, the Lord through Isaiah addresses the gods, the idols that people worship. He says in Isaiah 41, 23, Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know you are gods. In other words, if they were really gods, they could tell us what was going to happen in the future. But they can't. And so he says to them, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Or there's a very interesting verse in Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10 verse 11. Unlike almost all the rest of the Old Testament, this verse isn't written in Hebrew. Rather, it's written in Aramaic, which was the international language of the day. And God says there, Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In other words, only the God who made the heavens and the earth shall endure. So in a sense, other gods are recognized in the Bible. 
in the sense that other people worship them, but they have no existence and they are not to be feared. The Bible does tell us at times that there are real beings behind those gods that the nations worship. But those are demons, not gods. Uh, and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten twenty, What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Just as Psalm 106, 37 says that the people serve the idols they found in Canaan and sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. We could probably link that with Daniel chapter 10, which talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece who fight against the archangel Michael, which hints that behind the human rulers of each country are spiritual ones as well, uh, demonic rulers. But what about those passages which do seem to speak of other gods as if they, they had existence one which someone might turn to is Psalm 82, which says that God holds judgment in the midst of the gods. Uh, and later in the psalm, there's a verse that Jesus himself quotes. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. But the Bible at times speaks of earthly rulers in, in godlike terms. Uh, we see that, for example, with the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, or the king in Daniel 11, who we're told will magnify himself above every god. And the word Elohim is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament as angels in, in Psalm 8, about Jesus being made a little lower than the angels. That's how it's quoted in Psalm in, in Hebrews 2. Uh, you've made him a little lower than the angels, speaking of Jesus. So the word Elohim can mean angels, it, it, it can mean human rulers. Uh, another reference where it sees angel where where it may mean angels is uh, Psalm 97, which we'll sing at the end tonight. Psalm 97 7 says, Worship him, all you gods. And Hebrews 1.6 quotes it, or a similar verse in Deuteronomy saying of Jesus, let all God's angels worship him. So the, the Old Testament says Elohim, but the New Testament quotes it as referring to angels. Or in Job 1 verse 6, the, the sons of God who come to present themselves before God are angels. So human rulers and angels can be spoken of in the Bible in exalted terms. But the Bible is also clear that there is only one eternal, self-existent, uncreated God. Nor does belief in the Trinity mean that we believe in three gods. Mormons will say they believe in the Trinity as long as they can define it as believing in three gods. But the God of the Bible is one God in three persons. I quoted Matthew 28 earlier where the Lord Jesus gives a commission 
to the church to baptize all nations into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's not the, the names of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but the singular name. Three persons, but one God. The Bible teaches that the, the, well, if, someone, if someone asks, why do you believe in the Trinity? Well, the Bible teaches that the Father is God. It teaches that Jesus is God. And it teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. And it also teaches that there is only one God. And, and so in a sense, the, the, the Trinity is not that confusing. Now, now, understanding the Trinity is beyond our understanding, but, but even our children can understand that there is only one God, uh, but that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we believe and confess that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Where is the Trinity in the Old Testament, someone might ask. Is this not just something that Christians came along and invented? Well, we can turn to, to many places in the Old Testament. For example, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's the, the Father speaking to the Son. Or Psalm 2, uh, where the Father says, You are my Son, uh, today I have begotten you. But actually, even in, it, in this very basic word for God, uh, the word Elohim, there is a hint of what would be fully revealed later. Because the im ending in Hebrew is a, is a plural ending. So, for example, if the Bible speaks of cherubim, it means you have more than one cherub. If the Bible speaks of seraphim, it, it means you have more than one seraph. Uh, so Elohim, it, it's a, a plural word. And as we've seen, sometimes it can mean uh, gods with a small g, the gods of the nations. But most of the time, even though it's a, a plural word, it refers to the one true God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, so not, not the gods of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And yet this one God can say, let us create man in our image. Not, now we don't build the doctrine of the Trinity off that. But when the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in the New Testament, it, it fits with what's already there in the Old. And in fact, parts of the Old Testament begin to make more sense. So that is Elohim, the, the most basic name of God in the Bible. What is this God? Who is this God? To bring all this home to every one of us tonight. The larger catechism tells us God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness and perfection all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And he is a God who each one of us will one day stand before. Unless our sins are dealt with, that would mean our doom. But amazingly, in Jesus Christ, who is himself fully God, God has provided a way that we can not simply make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth, but be there as his beloved sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of God, of Elohim. And even now, this is our identity. Sons and daughters of Adam by birth, but sons and daughters of God by adoption, by the new birth. No more glorious title could be given to us. And our calling and our great privilege is to go out this week and live like sons and daughters of God. Amen. Well, let's sing in closing from one of the Psalms that I quoted earlier, Psalm 97. Psalm 97, 4 through 7, starting on page 230. Psalm 97, verses 4 to the end, starting on page 230. And notice especially the last part of verse 4, where other gods are addressed, and they're told, you all bow down before him must. So whether we take these as angelic beings or demonic beings, they're given the name of gods, but they're, they're told to bow down before the one true God. And in light of Hebrews chapter 1, we can say that this God who judges, or this God who who earth judges kings, angels and demons are called to worship is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in verse 6 here supreme above all gods and to worship him brings true joy. Yes, it will bring persecution as we thought about last week. But verse 5, when Zion heard she joyful was, yes, Judah's daughters were glad too. Verse 7 speaks of joy for the upright in heart and gladness for the righteous. Worshipping other gods just brings misery. But serving the God whose name was put upon us in baptism is our highest privilege and greatest joy. Uh, so the tune is Duke Street, number 10, uh, Psalm 97, 4 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>